This is The A. I'm Reg Clay. And I'm Mallory Samara. This is The A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. As always, we are sponsored by Central Works, a new play theater headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Zweifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. As always, we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring us and our consulting producer, Mallory Samara, who is right here. (laughs) And we have a fantastic guest, Lily. I want to say your last name correctly. Janiak or is it Janik? It's Janik. Janik. Lillian Janik, who is the reporter for San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, If any of you who are involved in theater have read a review in the San Francisco Chronicle or SF Gate, it was probably by Miss Janik. How are you? I'm okay. I'm coming off a two-night, two-review run, and right after this podcast, I'm going to another show, and I'm going to try to review that one tonight. So today is a rare instance of hopefully filing two reviews in a single day. Wow, wow, wow. So I'm, I'm... I'm trying to hold it all together. <laughs> you're doing it. Am I? Oh, yeah, yeah. you're doing it. Hey, you're there. That, that is the hustle. You're there. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's cool because, you know, we've had actors, we've had dancers, singers, we've had people in tech. Our last person was um, Elijah Collins, who does visuals for theater. So we've tried to capture all aspects of theater, even people who own theater companies. And this is another aspect of theater, people who report, who just write about Uh, theater so it's a nice uh, aspect of you know viewing theater absorbing theater so uh, it'll be great to hear more about you and all that stuff um how's everybody doing this week this weekend i tell myself we're out we're out of covid i still have my mask but i haven't worn my mask in like i don't know two weeks or so so it feels strange (laughs) i still wear it if uh if like a a server is wearing their mask or say i'm right Getting checked out at Sephora, you know, usually at stores, I try to, I try to wear it because mm-hmm. some months ago I got really lazy. I got COVID in December. And then after that, I was like, man, I don't need a mask. And then I kept getting a cold like mm-hmm. once a month. And I was mm-hmm. like, I should probably wear it sometimes, <laughs> especially in theater. I always wear it in theater. Yeah. Um, just because I know it's, uh, it's a vulnerable position for actors to be in if they, you know, if they don't have an understudy then. Right. Exactly. I stage managed Tasha, three girls theater did that at the Z below and all of our rehearsals were with masks and we asked all of the patrons to wear masks and luckily everyone has, I, I think there was only one instance where someone was like, Ugh. but you know, in the Bay area, we're in that bubble and people are very appreciative of each other. Um, have you had to adjust wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or whatever, Lillian? Oh, um, also, you can call me Lily. Lily, all right. Yeah, m- only my parents call me Lillian. Uh, um, good to know. <laughs> so oh, I, no. I feel like I'm about to have to go to my room now. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Um, I just keep a mask in my purse at all times, yeah. and I kind of assess what the situation is when mm-hmm. I get to the theater. Um, but I always have it ready just in case so I can be respectful of what everyone's norms and yeah. rules are. Yeah. It's amazing how society can dictate how our how we how we I don't know operate or how we do things or what are uh, things like two or th- some odd years ago it it was tough for me to even wear a mask I was like man I can't can't wait to just get rid of it mm-hmm. and now I have to sort of condition myself to not wear it I'll I'll I one time had a panic attack going to the bar and I was like oh man I don't have my mask I got to go back home mm-hmm. and now I could tell myself no I don't have to think that way anymore so it's yeah. crazy it's been it's been very interesting my cousin came to visit from she's been living in Montana for a few years and she's originally from here her mom's in Vacaville way more lax about COVID Solano County and um, she came to visit we went to San Francisco and I think this was last year I think last summer and um, we had to go to a couple of places because they didn't have their masks mm. and uh, she, they, neither of them had their vaccination cards on them because they didn't, they don't really need it where they live. Yeah, Montana. I was reading about Montana. Now, I only know of two cities. There's Helena, which is the capital, mm. and there's Bozeman. Mm. Was it one of those? I don't know where she, okay. yeah, no. I'm, not, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, I mean, the population is, is so scarce. It's scarce. And um, I mean, during the pandemic they were very lax about masks they were very uh, mm-hmm. anti about it's it it's a red state yeah yeah so, yeah there yeah. you go <laughs> there have been a couple of uh, current events and we can just touch on that and we can just move on if we don't want to talk about it but i try to capture some stuff the fda has approved Neuralink. this i'm sure you guys have heard about this the elon musk elon musk of course is among all sorts of other things he's doing 
Apparently, he's the FDA has allowed him to test putting a chip in people's brains. <laughs> I'm not sure what it's going to do. I think he. It's, Are we sure this isn't a sci-fi movie? Hey, it may be. We it's, are it's, in a sci-fi movie. <laughs> I guess it's going to monitor. I don't know if you've ever had a, uh, I don't know, heart transplant or something like that, just to make sure that I don't know, organs or whatever, according to him. But it seems interesting. It seems even more interesting that the FDA is allowing him to do that. So I guess who knows what's going on. Working with NASA, working <laughs> with the FDA. He wants to colonize space, our brains. Right, <laughs> SpaceX. Yeah, exactly. There was that yeah. failed launch. Remember, he launched a rocket. It failed, but he called it a success anyway, so mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah, we uh, did a, an episode for one of my podcasts about the space race, mm-hmm. and one of our experts that we talked to, you know, he's uh, an expert in, uh, like, foreign affairs and things like that, mm-hmm. and, and space, and he was like, you know, humans are kind of a conflict rich species <laughs> yeah. and if we take our problems here to space like we're just going to end up with the same problems yeah in space and leave people who can't afford to go to space like behind here on a planet that is not it seems to be a luxury <laughs> oh <laughs> moving to a new place isn't gonna magically solve all our problems <laughs> oh right God, exactly therapy <laughs> we've littered earth why not litter another planet right yeah, who yeah. knows uh air new zealand they are weighing passengers before they get on board. Heard about that. I could see a lot of problems with that. <laughs> and I'm not, wow. sure, I'm not sure what's going on with that or if they're out of it. I don't know if it's voluntary or if people can opt out of that. I mean, I, I don't think that could ever happen. In Well, I think in uh, some opinions I was reading and, of course, things that I thought of myself is just that, you know, airlines have packed in so many seats to airplanes That's just exactly to make right. more money. Yeah. And if they just let us have some space, I feel like it wouldn't be a problem. Mhm. Yeah. But know. but if you yeah, but if you widen these seats, then you have less seats, less income. Mhm. Uh so It's very yelling fat phobic to me but wow i guess this foils my plan of trying to sneak more stuff on board by (laughs) putting it under my trench coat right exactly that goes up in smoke now you guys you can get it through tsa (laughs) and there was another article and i'm glad two reporters or in the you know journalism business vanity fair this deals with uh you probably know that elizabeth holmes this week was booked into jail and there was an article in the New York Times, I believe her name is Amy Chosnick, who was the reporter, who gave a very, very softball report on Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. And Vanity Fair called out the New York Times, like, hey, you're the paper of record. How can you allow something like this? You know, very softball, I think. I read the article, and Amy is talking about, oh, you know, she's so charming, and she has just has a child, and we went to the zoo together. It was so wonderful. But... um if I could ask a question, I mean, what are the challenges of reporting and how do you deal with the blowback? Do you deal with black or do you let the journal, do you let your editors deal with the blowback if someone doesn't like your, your piece? We're smiling at each other right now, <laughs> silently. Yeah, yeah. If you and also as women, us, I mean, but, you know, that's another thing. Mm-hmm, that is a whole other thing. Uh, mm, uh. <laughs> Did I catch you guys off guard? Sorry about that. No, no. I think that... Um, uh, the current place where I work, I actually have a harder time uh, taking it there because um, they are so. Um, you mean taking the blowback? Oh no, no! I mean oh. like in uh, before even getting the blowback, it's uh, the assignment. The assignment itself, the pitching mm-hmm. of it, it's like okay, well, we have to be balanced. We have we can't go too soft on this person. We can't you know do this and that. And so, um, in contrast to where you used to work, no, just, I think, you know, like newspapers, they have like opinion, uh, sections and like op-eds and editorials and and I think, um, maybe a little bit more room to insert some of those adjectives about people that we wouldn't at the station. It's very, especially like the on-air reporters, we, they have one minute to report a story so there's not really a ton of room to be like, this person was really nice and da da da. It's, they were hiking this trail, they went this many miles, and they were feeling this way. Yeah, fact finding, basically just, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and as far as like the podcasting part goes, um, I, ha- I personally haven't um, gotten that much blowback about things that I've done, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, I do try to, at least in my personal like philosophy, is try to lend 
voice to like more voiceless people and underserved, you know, voices and, and things like that. And I could see how that would probably be a problem if more people listened, maybe, you know, or if other demographics like listen, Sure. but I think we have an audience and I haven't suffered too much of that blowback, Mm. but getting to that place where we can do a story that might receive blowback is Mm -hmm. less likely. Yeah. So that's because it it ties into, I was just thinking about the CNN town hall meeting that they had with Donald Trump Mm -hmm. and there was tremendous blowback and the moderator, I forget the woman's name. She was accused of just asking softball questions to Trump. And of course, CNN was like, well, we're just trying to make it fair and balanced. And I know we don't like Trump, but we got to put him on because we're a news organization and this is the fair thing to do. Mm-hmm. But how do you balance that between that and being manipulated by the very person that who you're interviewing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's funny to hear you say that about this situation with Trump, because in that lady's case, it almost sounds like there's no way she could win. Yeah. And that does kind of check out for me because it just feels like existing as a public figure, as a woman on mm-hmm. the internet, you're, it's, somebody's going to find something wrong with you. Yeah. 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 I mean, there is going to be, there's, 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 there are haters who are just going to say, well, I, you know, you gave an opinion. I don't like your opinion. Okay. That's, that's no problem. But if you're, if your assignment is to give a fair and balanced report on someone, even someone who is controversial, mm-hmm. and to, like I think about Walter Cronkite or the old days of Edward R. Murrow, you know, giving a hit piece on McCarthyism to say, hey, listen, this is what he says, but this is what we found out. Mm-hmm. You know, Walter Cronkite says, Nixon says we're winning the war in Vietnam. No, we're not, because I've seen the papers, you know. So there's, audience feels uh, a need that there's a responsibility of the journalist to give us, you know, a fair and balance to tell us exactly what's going on. And if you're manipulated, then it's like, well, why am I even listening to you? Or why am I reading this paper? And for it to happen in the New York Times is interesting. Yeah, I did do a piece, uh, maybe, no, a year and a half ago now or something, and it was about um, black history here in Oakland. And I interviewed Frederica Newton, you know, Huey P. Newton's wife, uh, widow, And I did get a few comments about, like, why are you highlighting the wife of, you know, someone who was accused? And it's like, you can't deny the Black Panthers history here in Oakland and Mm -hmm. I mean, across the country, across the world, really. And that is, I mean, that's black history, you know, so period. (laughs) Yeah, I totally hear you. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I just want to, you know, just get a perspective of, you know, what the pressure is of being a journalist and, you know. And all that stuff. I mean, it is such a, I mean, historically, like, white male-run space. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, like, as more, not more, but, like, as women exist and move and work their butts off in mm-hmm. this space, of course, like, there's going to be, you know, blowback. Because sometimes we're not allowed to have opinions or, you know, whatever. But um, hopefully, mm-hmm. I don't know. Or you're assigned to do something that is a women's piece. So, of course, being the woman, you are going to do it. And, you know, that could be and a form of manipulation. all women. <laughs> and then you represent all women. Which is really easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no pressure. Especially, like, say, if you are somewhere, like, an institution that is less diverse, you know, and you might get approached. You, you might get approached to do something because, like, you know, say, like, you're a woman of color, so why don't you do this diversity piece? And it's like, you know, there's, like, more that we, we don't have to just, like, we can do more than just check off a box. Right. Let's figure yeah. out. <laughs> as, as what us actors, you know, we've been talking about this on the A4 a lot. Yeah. Actors who are hired to be on stage to be the token, I don't know, black, Filipino, or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. minority. But the storyline has nothing to do with your heritage. You're just there to sort of color up the piece. Mm-hmm. And you can say yes, or you can sort of push back, or you can ask, you know, cogent questions yeah. and all that stuff. So. <clears throat> it's not just journalism, but, you know, it happens uh, everywhere. Yeah. Excuse me. The last before we get into an origin story. Um, I saw this. Uh, the California, apparently there's a bill, the California Journalism Preservation Act, AB 886. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. So apparently, like, let's say you write a piece or you do a podcasting thing and it's picked up by a tech platform, Um I don't know, I can't even think of one, like Ars Technica or something like that, Mm -hmm. and you're not paid, or 
the company that you work with are not paid. So this is a bill. It says to require tech platforms to pay publishers and writers for content created by local journalists. Well, I wish they had a bill like that for every kind of contract because uh, as it goes, I mean, so, mo- so many freelance journalists like often don't get paid on time or... Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean... Oh, does that happen? Well, I'm I'm no longer freelance, but I remember the days. I mean, and I, I've never been freelance, but I have a ton... I mean, I went to, you know, mm-hmm. school with a lot of people who went on to do freelance work and I mean, people have to wait weeks, months. Um, it's demoralizing, yeah, dehumanizing. It is. And sometimes you, you do the work and then you have to wait until it gets published or you have to wait until it gets like all edited and mm-hmm. approved and then it gets published and then you might get your check. Um, wow. So that is a problem. That's a, it's a problem everywhere. Um, so yeah, yay for like tech or like mm-hmm. making tech do that. But yeah. like if we could have that for journalists freelance journalists in general that would be great. so you've had to deal with that oh well um this reminds me of an exchange i was just having on facebook this morning with charles mcnulty at the la times um he wrote something about how he's learned to post his reviews in the comments of his own post and st- and this is all just hmm. to try to manipulate the algorithm and i i was curious like does that work (laughs) or like what have you found um but then he brought up this bill and it seemed he said something like well if it gets passed and zuckerberg then bans posts about journalism so that he doesn't have to pay journalists Mm -hmm. um then Mm. mcnulty will be pleased to leave facebook so yeah and then you have to find another platform, and then another CEO could do the exact same thing. Musk can do the same thing with with uh, Twitter. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm I've been hearing a lot just in I mean especially now with like AI and all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that tech seems to think that it can replace journalism. Now, Lily, I mean, how do you feel about can an AI write a review? I don't Ooh, I did a column about this. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, I created a chat GPT account and um, I fed it like the same blurb about a show that I would give my editors as I were pitch as if I were pitching a story. So that's how much information it had to then write an article Mm -hmm. and um it got artists names wrong it Mm -hmm. it added artists who weren't in the show (laughs) i was like matt steins did not do sound design for at club fugazi excuse me but it's interesting that you think he did what should what do i learn from that does this predict the future yeah Yeah. Uh, and but then the review itself was just uh it was to say it's like a word salad isn't quite right. It's like <laughs> adjectives, adverbs, <laughs> it's just, everything it's in. Just, it's lorem ipsum. It's yeah. <laughs> it's like a, like letters that fill space in a plausible way. It it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't like say it made my eyes bleed to read, <laughs> but it like yeah. It, it kind of turned my brain. Yeah. To the off switch. Yeah, maybe mushed it up a yeah. little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. I'm laughing because I had a co- I had a conversation with a lawyer, um, one of the lawyers that I um, that I am a paralegal for, and so in New York, a lawyer, I guess, out of laziness or whatever, got Chat GTPT to write a motion in court. And of course, it got uh, and it cites law, which does not exist at all, (laughs) which got him in trouble with uh, the attorney. I mean, I'm sorry, with the judge. And so a judge in Texas says, listen, if you're going to post anything, if you're going to file anything in court, there has to be a certificate that it was written by a human being or edited by a human being. This is the future. This it's 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 going to be crazy. I just tweeted about. Do either of you uh, watch Succession? Yeah. I'm on season I two. <laughs> uh, I'm just on season one. I've sort of, I have mixed feelings about it, but go ahead. 
I loved it. I think it's great satire. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I won't say what this episode is about because you'll have to watch it. Um, but there's a speech that someone gives, and actually there's a few speeches, and they were so uh, there were things in there that I feel like could oh only, the word salad Go ahead. The, yeah just I feel like they could only be thought up in the brain of a writer and or improved by mm. the actor who is or the actress who is delivering it, mm-hmm. and I tweeted the line which I won't say. Um, and I was like, AI could never. And someone was like, well, yeah, once they learn the, once they study the, you know, characteristics of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I don't think so. I just don't, I don't see it being that good. Then there's nothing new ever created. Mm-hmm. Right. The AI can't have original ideas or take art in new directions. I've also seen this take, which is, you know, can we get less of AI writing poetry and more maybe solving other world problems that we, <laughs> that mm-hmm. we are like just helping in that way? Because we have enough artists, we have enough writers. And- yeah. Well, there needs to be respectful writers. I mean, the very idea of having an AI paint a picture mm-hmm. or to sing. I mean, that's been a big thing in... I think there was a rapper. Do you, you mm-hmm. probably heard about the AI rapper? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, the, and got signed, apparently. Yeah. The, and the thing is, like, all of this AI, none of it is original. It takes from it takes from sources that already mm-hmm. exist. It takes from voices that already exist. It takes from art. You know, all the paintings and stuff. They're all stolen right. from artists' work who that is already on the internet. Yeah, somebody has to code it all in. But I do agree with you, Lily, that there's got to be a difference between the human element of writing and acting and dancing and all of that stuff that can be appreciated. And I think we can segue into an origin story. Uh, Lily Janik, um, where were you born and raised? And um, I could say how the theater bug bites you. um, Yeah. but, But yeah, go ahead. Where were you born and raised? So I grew up in three states. Uh outside of Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Then when I was 10, I moved to outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And then when I was 16, I moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Wow. And my theater bug bit me. Mm-hmm. Do you um, have any siblings? I have one sibling. His name is Joe Janik. He, I, I say this every single time I tell people about him, but uh, my brother is a six foot three, 125 pound, blonde haired, blue eyed chemical engineer. Wow. And I am his much shorter, darker theater critic sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he sounds long and lanky. Yeah, yes. Yes. I say this every single time just to like get under his skin. Uh, it's a big it. sister thing. You have I to can, do it. I can see it. I can I can see him here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He'd be oh. <laughs> Now, did you act at all when you were a kid? Oh yeah. There. Oh yeah. So, my origin story mm-hmm. is my grandma in Jackson, Michigan had the staircase Mm -hmm. and I almost brought a picture so I could show you all but in the staircase was a window that looked down on the living room and I don't know how I knew this but even as a tiny little girl Mm -hmm. I knew that was a stage Mm -hmm. and that I was meant to direct all of my cousins in musical reviews for an audience of aunts uncles and grandparents wow and so I forced them all to be in a show, I wrote the set list, and <laughs> I was sold from there. I knew theater was magic, and I was right. I love that. Yeah, so, I mean, did you was did you see something on stage, or did you see television or whatever, or you just had it in your mind as a oh, little girl? Oh, I just, I, I, I recall going with my grandmother to productions of I think Free Shakespeare in the Park in Jackson, Michigan. Yeah. I saw Annie. I remember going to school productions of The Sound of Music. Um, And I just loved the hush, the darkness, the focus, the way that, and I wouldn't have articulated it this way then, of course, but here's an example I frequently give. You can put two characters on stage and have one of them be alive and one of them be dead, or one of them in Asia and one of them in South America. And it makes total sense 
and it works. You achieve it with lighting and the craft of the actor. You tried to do the same thing on film, it would look so dumb. Yeah. And it, it does. You, you see this in clumsy uh, stage to screen mm-hmm. translations. But I just love the way that the stage enlists the audience's imagination and then the audience just goes with it. Mm-hmm. It's so magical to me. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. And I've heard you know, so many individuals who've talked about when they were a kid and they were just mesmerized at things happening on stage live. Mm-hmm. Or let's say a teacher says, hey, we're going to do a play. And, and all of a sudden they're transformed. Yeah. And it doesn't go away when they grow up. And it sounds like it was the same for you. What about high school? Did you Were you involved in productions then? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I moved to Texas, I had an amazing fourth period drama teacher, John Carlisle Mol- more who on my first day of school I came in the middle of the year he like took me aside to a library to like sit me down and get to know me which was total I I went to a private school in Texas for the first time in my life mm-hmm. and I was like what why is this teacher taught what is happening mm-hmm. but he I've I'd never experienced anything like that and he told me I had a lovely soul which was just so... That can go both ways. Yeah. It could be creepy oh, or it could be... I mean, it was just so... Uh, I felt seen in a really... Which, right on. And yeah, like what to, a compliment. Well, and also to, to hear that when you're 16 years old and you've just moved to a new state and you're not sure if you're going to make any friends. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, I acted and directed um, for, for him and... When he did Love's Labor's Lost, I was even charged with cutting the text, which was a pretty cool responsibility for just a student. But I had um, fellow students get very mad at me when I cut their lines. <laughs> but oh, well. you can't, make, can't make everyone happy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah, less lines to memorize. But yeah, no, I totally understand. And he, he trusted you. Yeah, and we're still in touch. I mean amazing yeah yeah and he I still remember other things he told me um he he told me I was good at making myself vulnerable which was Mm. just such a compliment for Mm. a young actor there were lots of other things I couldn't do such as stand up straight for example (laughs) but um to hear that was just so wonderful yeah Yeah. very genuine Yeah. yeah it's cool when a teacher does just more than teach you know they actually motivate you and it can really motivate you throughout the rest of your life i remember you know my teacher the late dr um um, donald lease who was um the the head of theater department in duke ellington school of the arts Mm -hmm. and we were transformed you know we were kids that from the ghetto Mm -hmm. and we were you know we just entered into a new world and all of us were you know just motivated and we knew that we could accomplish great things even if we didn't become, you know, actors or, or whatever, but we, we seen seen. Did you have that same experience, Mallory? I was just thinking about that. Uh, two teachers stand out to me. I went to a small charter school in Vallejo, so we didn't have theater. <laughs> Barely had sports. Um, but I did go to Berkeley Rep for three summers when I was a teen. So I, you know, got in on scholarship and I was kind of like in this, I mean, not in a new world because my mom was on stage, but... I was the only Filipino, you know, in the program. Mostly everyone was white, except for my last year. Um, Completely just knew other teenagers, really intimidating. Mm. Like, oh. Um, So two teachers stand out in mind for me. Margot Hall was my acting teacher. Oh, my gosh. And we had her on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jealous. She, oh, my gosh. So to see her just do everything all all over the place is really cool. And one of the things that she, one of the notes that she gave me, we, I remember because I still have the card, it was like on an index card, she was like giving feedback. And I use this every day with me, with myself, my profession, my life. Um, but she always, you know, she told me that like when I get out on stage to take a moment and just just sit in it. Like don't, don't just like go right into your line, but to take a moment, take that time with yourself to like settle into it. And so that's stayed with me. And then also a teacher I had was Hector Correa. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I will say, I don't remember his advice 
from school. But I ran into him, I think I was on BART, on my way to Pride. And this was, I think I was like 22 at this point. So like seven years later or something like that. And I said, I went up to him. I was like, oh my God, you're my acting teacher. He was like, oh my God, hi. You know, we hugged each other. And he took me by the hand and he said, remember, be fearless. And I was like, there you go. Oh my God. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So I think about those two things just like all the time. Yeah. Um, another question I had for you, I'm watching the time as well, because I know both of you have to go. Um, you transferred, you transitioned into journalism. Uh, how did that sort of come to be? Well, um, after high school, uh, at college, somehow I stopped getting, uh, cast in things, even though I auditioned for like every single role, uh, Mm for two years and cried into my pillow oh, every no. night. What? No, uh, not every night, but yeah. it was, I had a pretty brutal awakening in it's college. Yeah. Um, and I had to learn, Lily, God love you. You are not meant to be an actor. <sighs> but it was probably for the best because I actually, uh, I kind of struggle in rehearsal rooms mm. doing the same thing over and over. And this theater critic gig where I swoop in and then swoop back out kind of really works for me. It's every single day is totally different. Mm -hmm. So, so like, it's not just different shows. Sometimes I'm an investigative reporter. Sometimes I'm, uh, I am sitting in on a rehearsal room, but just for a little while. Um, Sometimes I'm getting to hear an artist's life story and why they make their art. So the pace of that really suits me. But it did take me a while to find all all of this. Like, I tried directing, I tried playwriting, and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated college. I felt super lame. It seemed like everyone else around me had something lined up. And I was, like, taking minimum wage jobs uh, in New Haven. And I eventually moved home uh, to my parents in Texas, then realized, oh, gosh, I have to get out of here. Mm. (laughs) And uh, thankfully, a friend uh, hooked me up with a house-sitting gig in SF, which I have no family here. It was a big, big transition. I came here with a backpack and a duffel bag. Mm. What, um, what year are we talking about? This is 2009. Okay. And the night after, the night I arrived, within 12 hours, um, I had lined up the start of... Fix your mic. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I had lined up the start of rehearsal at Marin Theater Company. Wow. I was um, interning as an assistant director. And there I got to meet some amazing artists, uh, including Julia Brothers, mm-hmm. who um, now does stuff more in New York, though maybe she'd say she splits her time between the Bay and New York, but man, that woman can do anything, including get me my first theater critic gig. Wow. Um, she was, I was carpooling home with her and a bunch of others one day, and I can still see her in the driver's seat, her eyes in the rearview mirror. Everyone's talking, as actors do, about what projects they have lined up next. I, at my turn, have nothing to say, feel very embarrassed. And then Julia, eyes in the rearview mirror, squints a little bit, asks me ideally what I would do. And I said, be a theater critic. And she said, oh, I can make that happen. Wow. Fairy godmother. She is. She she actually, in addition to being an amazing actor, she hooked me up with someone she knew at the San Francisco Bay Times, an LGBTQ paper. And he went to a show with me first um, just to meet me and see if I could show up on time, I guess. Mm -hmm. Then the next show, we still both went um, and I wrote a trial review. And I guess he went just in case he'd have to fix things or to fact check me, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Hilariously, it was 
uh, a lesbian cabaret at NCTC. And I did the incredibly college thing of writing about Aristotle's poetics, <laughs> <laughs> like referring to it by name nice. in my review of Very this, nice. uh, this lesbian cabaret, which is just hilarious to me. Um, <laughs> anyways, but the, the performers wrote me later and said, it, how, it feels like you've been with our show the whole time. You know it so well. Um, so may, maybe I was a little bit on track, but that's how it all started. From there, I went to SF Weekly. Um, I eventually got my master's at SF State. And yeah. No, that's fantastic. Just as you were talking, it it I guess it reminded me that you know, theater companies are, are looking just to get noticed. You know, they need a sort of a bullhorn or some sort of a light to reflect on them, uh, whether they're good or not. And that's the role, I think, of, you know, uh, a theater critic or even, you know, a theater like TBA. TBA, you know, Which constantly posting. Which you wrote posting. for, too. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, had, we had Dale Albright on a couple of, several years ago when he was a part of TBA. As a matter of fact, I shared the stage with uh, uh, Dale. But, you know, we, we count. We as theater people count mm-hmm. on papers to, you know, give us a fair review. You know, if something's crappy, let us know, you know, yeah. what we need to work on. Or if it's great, let us know so, you know, so that people can know where we're at and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, people always seem really grateful when you cover things. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I prefer, I, I come from music journalism and music radio. Now I'm in news. So when I can, I try to do the arts and culture beat. Um, and people just seem really grateful when you meet them. Like, I, yes, because you're a journalist and you're going to like cover what, you know, but I mean, especially if you take the time to speak with them and get to know them. And um, I don't know, I always walk out of interviews feeling really like full. Mm-hmm. Exact same here. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I often say that if you're um, feeling down or nihilistic, go interview an artist about why they make art. Mm-hmm. It is, it's better than therapy, religion. I don't know, nourishment mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. yeah. So do you see your role as sort of a public servant for the theater no. community? No. And it was interesting to hear you say that because I think that is a source of tension between mm. me and theater artists a lot. Okay. I mean, th- well, there is, that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. But my first audience is always Chronicle readers, not the not theater artists. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, readers are the ones we're serving. They're the ones who hopefully subscribe to us. Mm -hmm. And if I were to write with theater artists in mind first, I would risk kind of becoming inside baseball or like a trade publication. Sure, sure. Whereas I see my job as more to reel in all kinds of readers, people with very, very casual interests in theater people who loved theater as a kid but forgot about it, people whose wife is hogging the sports section and so they have to read something else. Mm -hmm. So how can I hook that person? Mm -hmm. And for me, the answer can't be to think of what these actors, artistic directors, playwrights, whoever else, I can't think about them first. I hear you. It's interesting. When you first got into um, working for the San Francisco Chronicle, you said 2008, 2007? Oh, oh the Chronicle. Oh, no. Um, oh, 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 no, no. I moved here in 2009, uh-huh. and I started at the Cron in 2016. 2016, okay, because there was a transition in 2009 where people were stopped buying physical paper and as a matter of fact, the iPhone came out in 2007, and mm-hmm. so a lot of and the apps and people, you know, getting push notifications. I imagine it was a big transition from print. You know, I think that may have been when the Chronicle stopped. You know, um, like that Chronicle building. I think it got converted to you know something else. Oh, like we're, still the, yeah. we're still there. We're still there. It's just renovated, right? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> we we look a little bit more like a tech startup on the inside now, but we are still there. Yeah, yeah. but there mission. was that there was that transition between people picking up the mm-hmm. paper and people getting a push notification. I don't know if that you were affected by that transition. I guess you came in much later, you know. 
Well, we do still have a print paper seven days a week, and we do still have a lot of print subscribers, and they're a huge part of what we do, and uh, I don't know if I'd have a job without them. Yeah. However, um, we're certainly not, uh, and you know, I'm perhaps not the best person to interview about this because I'm not privy to, to high-level discussions about mm-hmm. strategy at the yeah. Chronicle, but we're aware that digital is probably the future and so we make a lot of our coverage decisions accordingly and we also have a lot more data about our readers habits than perhaps past generally past generations of Mm -hmm. journalists did so i can see you know i might get a few comments or emails um, about a story and perhaps in the past um, I would think that necessarily meant it had a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have lots and lots of granular information about, you know, maybe a few people were really moved by this story, but this other one reached a whole lot of others. Mm-hmm. So that that helps me make decisions about what I cover in the future. It's not the only factor at all, but again, I do want to be read and I do want to serve readers. Yeah. How does it affect you? Oh, I was just thinking about that in that, so one of the podcasts that I help produce and that I help develop, um, it's a national one, it's called It's Generational. And we have a panel of four different people from four different generations. So Boomer, X, millennial and gen z that's awesome thank you and we walk them through three different subjects and then we turn each of those subjects into an episode and so um we'll have the round table we'll talk about something for about half an hour and we help uh we use their discussion to help inform us how we're going to book that expert or like angle that episode it's really fun if you want to check it out mm-hmm. um what was the name again it's, it's generational, generational. Mm-hmm. it's an odyssey app or odyssey podcast um so we have a lot of fun with that but when we're booking panelists people that we want on the panel in the round table it can get kind of difficult because we have to choose people who might have a larger social media following people who are more likely to promote the episode on oh, their Oh, they may, they may try to take over. So that we can get it out there and that so that people can gain access to it and learn about it. And so when we're booking people, that is something that we have to that we have to look out for. So we have to keep digital in mind. Um, yeah, and like you said just with like analytics and stuff like that it's a little bit easier to find out where people are listening from which episodes are listening to mm-hmm. yeah I, I did have a quick question on analytics and maybe i'll ask one more question before we close up um do you when you post one let's say a review is it a numbers game like are you uh, do you or let's say you know this chronicle check to see how many people are clicking onto the links or whatever uh, does that tie into i don't know are you sweating, you know, bullets that oh. uh, I need to get clicks, 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 and that sort of stuff? I mean, who knows? Maybe my editors are saying, Lily, you should be sweating some more bullets. <laughs> but I am i wouldn't say it's like that, I'm, that I'm sitting there biting my nails. Um, it, it's more like as the week is up or as the month is up, I'll assess, like, what was I really proud of this month? Mm-hmm. Um, what challenged me? as a writer, um, what writing do I think really just hit it this time? And then I'll compare that with my editor's feedback. I'll compare that with, um, again, emails, comments I've gotten with re- from readers, and with analytics. So it's mm. just one piece of the pie. And I'll use all of that plus what I'm actually excited about coming up to help me make coverage decisions. So it's it's just one piece, but it's a substantial piece. Yeah. I have a, a quick Sure, you know, absolutely. Um, question. Um, going from being on stage, and then I know you said you tried directing and having your hands in all the other parts of, of theater, and then going to critique, how did you find your voice as a writer? Because I think every writer can kind of remember 
where when they kind of got it and they were like oh this is like this is what I sound like and oh gosh I don't know if I've had that moment yet oh and I also I don't know if I was ever consciously searching for a voice Mm. um I don't think that was a worry for me my worry was always just more how do I say this thing in the most true way um and for me I'll give an example from kind of a perennial question but one that was definitely rearing its head on the last two reviews I wrote this uh yesterday and the night before good acting and bad acting are things I have to describe all the time right Mm -hmm. um once you get through the kind of standard adjectives, maybe by review number eight, you write, you'll have find, you'll find you'll have exhausted all of them. So how do I find a way to express what is unique, unrepeatable, that's not a word, I don't think, but... Um, it can be. Oh, <laughs> I like the way you think. Um, but about this particular person's performance... That is much more often, and I think maybe has always been my concern, rather than finding a voice. Maybe I should worry more about it. <laughs> yeah, know. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. No, I was thinking. I was thinking because I I went to school in New York, and Frank Rich is a big. <laughs> he's a he's a nationally known uh, critic, mm-hmm. um, almost reviled, to be quite honest, <laughs> because sometimes people will say, "Well, he doesn't just write reviews." He writes hit pieces. If he really doesn't like something or someone, yeah. he will make sure it hurts. Uh, or at least that's what people say. And I don't get that vibe from you at all. Oh, well, I mean, some people do say they get that vibe from me. Um, I'm glad if if, um, if you don't. But um, I guess sometimes as a critic, because I do see myself on the side of readers and potential theater audiences more than I do artists. If I walk out of a show and I feel hurt by the show, I feel uh, condescended to by the show, like my time was wasted, um, any, any number of things. Mm -hmm. If I feel that, um, it is my duty to report that. And I have to do it with the full arsenal of tools I can muster. Um, I don't know if that is the same thing as a hit piece. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's all semantics. Yeah. I think it's different. (laughs) I mean, I think if any, if an artist is honest, like I remember producing, you know, I wrote a piece for men in Paris. I know it had flaws, but I'm glad that, you know, it got picked up and I'm glad that for the pieces that did work, it worked. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were to read, let's say, a review, an honest review, that would highlight the flaws as well as, you know, some things that worked. If I were honest with myself, I would say, you know what, this is fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I were not honest with myself, if I were deluding myself, then I would say, well, this is just a piece of crap. And, you know, and why is Lily, you know, dogging me or whatever? So I think companies have to be honest with if a piece isn't working then a review is going to show that. And also it's possible that I'm totally wrong sometimes. And this is a cliche and critics trot it out all the time, but it actually is true. It is just one person's opinion. Mm-hmm. And I I don't get it sometimes, you know. Yeah. I, I don't see what everyone else sees, but pretty much anyone who's in this job, that would happen once in a while for them. Oh, yeah. We're all... We're all going to be the outliers once mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah. yeah, you're just one person. And I think that I th- uh, uh, what you do have in your toolkit, um, I mean, you have a bachelor's, you have a master's, you studied it, you've been on stage. So it's not like you're speaking from a place of like, like I just like to go watch theater and talk about yeah. it. Like, you know what it's like behind the scenes. You're not a, not a Reddit or commenter, you know, yeah. just thrown a... <laughs> yeah, in your basement in some like, right. you know, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you come from a place of knowledge. Not that you have to go to school for it to like know, but you've been on stage. You've you've been there. So I think that, that makes a big difference too. Yeah. I, I hope so. Yeah, I think so. One last question. Where do you see yourself in the future? Do you want to oh stay here? Do you want to go to LA or New York or oh. Well, my crystal ball is a bit cloudy, but um 
My husband and I both kind of have magical uh, Bay Area specific jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, He is a lecturer at Stanford. And when people hear lecturer um, in academia, they're they usually like lose all the color in their face. And, Does he have health insurance? Does he make a living? He he's he's doing great actually, mm-hmm. um, but it's not re- his job isn't really one that transfers, and neither is mine. I think also there are maybe a dozen full time theater writing positions in the country. So yeah, I feel pretty lucky most of the time that I just yeah. have one, and I I, I it sounds like you're happy here. Oh, I mean, I really do love it here. And as hard as it can be to write negative reviews or feel that everyone in theater hates you and know that you make mistakes sometimes, I mean, Mm -hmm. most of the time my job is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Talking to artists, going to see as many shows as I could possibly want. Um figuring out how to tell stories and challenging myself as a writer. I mean, it's just like, I can't believe I get to do this and it's for pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you have so, the added advantage of having studied a little bit of theater or knowing, you know, there's some critics who they come from a strictly journalism background and maybe they didn't even want the theater critic thing, but you know, they take the job anyway, but you're approaching it as someone who studied theater, who understands what a good actor is, what a good production is. So I think that carries a lot more weight than let's say, you know, just some hack who was given a job and well, let me, let me just do that until I find something else to do. Also just having a a staffed journalism job. Oh my God. You know, that's not very always easy to come by. But I will say, you know, uh, I got to interview my um, predecessor, Rob Hurwitt, for Theater Bay Area on the occasion of his retirement at age 75. Mm. Um, And that was a wonderful two-hour-long talk where I learned so much about the job, including the fact that I wanted to apply for it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, he, he and I have remained in pretty regular touch and he lets me know when he thinks I've gotten something right and when he thinks I've gotten something wrong and it's been just really wonderful to get to know him including talk more about why he left when he did Um, he said a couple of things to me about that which I'm sure he wouldn't mind my repeating Um, one is just that he felt he wasn't getting a lot of the references mm. in new scripts, mm-hmm. uh, pop culture references that seemed important to everyone else. Another was that when everyone else would react to something they saw on stage as if it were totally new, he would think, well, we were doing that in the 60s and the 70s. Mm. Sure. There's nothing new under the sun. And... Those are just, you know, two factors, but I I like to think that as long as I am still continually refreshed and energized by what I see, and as long as I can still find new ways to say what I'm seeing, hopefully there will always be a position for me at the Chronicle. Um, but, you know... When it starts to feel like a slog and I'm stamping out widgets, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, mm-hmm. maybe then it's time for another person to to have this job. Um, I, I, you know, theater critics, arts critics in general, stay in the post for decades sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I can see why, because where do you go from that job? Um, But on the other hand, wouldn't the scene be rejuvenated with a plethora of voices of equal influence? I'm not sure how to make that happen um, at at the Chronicle. I've been working on um, developing some young interns. We're about to have one start this summer, and I'm very, very, very involved with that program. Um, We're trying to diversify what arts criticism looks like um but yeah i i see myself here for the foreseeable future 
Yeah. That's a really long answer. I like no, that no, no, answer. no. No, I like that answer too. And I hope to think that as long as there's new theater or new ideas, new playwrights, and we interview playwrights all the time who have a new aspect of what's going on. One of them, uh, Molly Alice Crossed, uh, she wrote a piece, Nene, which was at Town Hall Theater. And that's been um, uh, a finalist for the Playwrights Foundation Bay Area Playwrights Festival. But she is one of those. She is a Philippine mixed Jewish person. And so she has a totally new aspect of how to look at things. But when you see new artists and new pieces, I'm sure that can, you know, you're talking about what's a new way of writing about things. Sometimes you need to see something new on stage instead of the next re-re-re-revival of, I don't know, The Sound of Music. <clears throat> yes. And for me, what's really cool is when I see something new on stage and then that helps me write criticism in a, mm-hmm. what feels to me a new way. I don't know if it feels that way to my readers, but mm-hmm. my own toolkit is refreshed by what I see. That's just the best feeling. Yeah. No, well, thank you so much for coming on. There are a couple of shows I want to push and then we can get on out of here. <laughs> I'm trying to respect a little people's times. Uh, 42nd Street Moon has She Loves Me. Uh, that'll be opening June the 8th through the 25th. Mara Sotella, who's been on this show, she's in it. Um, New Conservatory Theater is doing The Confessions of Lily Dare. That opened May the 12th. It closes June the 11th. Lamont Rogel is in that piece. Uh, Yerma which uh, Shotgun Players is doing, uh, that oh, opened, <laughs> ah, there you go, that uh, that closes June the 18th, and Linda Omayo Hassan is in that, and Katya Rivera uh, is directing the show. I think I may have read something, I think, did you review this? I just did, yeah. Oh, the there you night. go. <laughs> uh, and we have a link for that. Uh, Mountain Play is doing Into the Woods, uh, that'll close June the 18th. Eko Yamamoto, who's in everything, is in this. Uh, Central Works is doing The Dignity, Dignity Circle, that opens June 24th, closes July the 23rd. Kimberly Ridgway is in the show. Gary Graves is directing it. Tammy Berlin is doing costumes. Greg Sharpin is the sound designer. They've all been on the A. Alterine is doing the Soldier's Play. Uh, Sean J. West is has directing it. Fred Pitts, Terrence Smith, and Jake Fong are in the, in the play. One of my favorite Sondheim musical, Sunday in the Park with George, is being done. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. I would love to play George Sherratt, but he's not black. Well, well. <laughs> in any case, what? Los Alto Stage. Who, well, who knows? Who knows? Los Alto Stage Company is doing that, and Brenna Kimmerly is in the show, so check that out. We have a link for that. San Francisco Playhouse is continuing to do Chinglish. Uh, that closes June the 10th, so that's a week from now. Sharon Shaw, Michael Barrett, Austin is in the show. Jeffrey Lowe is directing it. Um, the Berkeley Playhouse is doing Becoming Robin Hood. Uh, that closes June the 25th. Paul Plain is in that show. Town Hall Theater is doing Crumbs from the Table of Joy. Um, it opens June the 3rd, closes June the 24th. Tamika Baptiste is directing that. And the last show uh, that I have here, uh, King Lear is being done by Silicon Valley Shakes. That won't be until July the 28th. That closes September the 1st. But that'll be an all-woman cast directed by a good friend of mine, Cynthia Logazinski. Um, and there are a couple of podcasts. Barry Graves, uh, The Black Man's Heart. Check that out. Your show. Um, <laughs> it's generational. And as prescribed, it's a weekly conversation with leading medical experts at USCSF Medical Center. Also Bay Current at KCBS. Bay Current. Yeah. Thank you. I'll put that in. <laughs> and also check out Central Works Script Club. That's a podcast where you can download and read a play script and then listen to an audio interview with playwright. They put that out semi-annually. And then Bindle Stiff is doing a podcast called The Fobcast, exploring Philippine-American immigrant stories. Check that out. And by all means, if you want to buy a jersey, we have the A jerseys. It's $30. One's white, one's black. We've had some pictures of folks who have supported the show. Check that out. All right, that is it. Hopefully you had a good time. Oh my gosh, this was great. <laughs> Hooray. Yay. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to rush, but I know that y- you have to go. So, <laughs> yeah. But in any case, uh, we are on all podcast apps. We are on Spotify, Overcast, SoundCloud. We're now on Amazon Podcast. And we were talking about Wisdom. That's a new um, audio. Um, it's not a podcast app per se, but I think we want to put some snippets on Wisdom. That's a new app that people should check out. The A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up. We have the Yay 3. That's our Twitter feed. I'm at Reg Space Clay. Norman is at Hoosier Hoosier. Uh, Lily, uh, I know people can find you on Facebook. Is there another uh, social media 
that people can talk to you? I don't know if you want <laughs> to uh, invite emails people. Emails preferred. Okay. L-J-A-N-I-A-K at sfchronicle.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to just say hi or send something fun, Facebook or Twitter, both work great. First name, last name. Right on. That is it. All right. I'm going to let everybody go. It's a wonderful Saturday afternoon. Happy and it's Saturday. Yeah. And as Norman and I always say, we got to find a better sign-off. And we are out. <laughs>